This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Well, Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. One more weekend before Labor Day. Enjoy your summer of 2020 before it's too late. Here's Scott Thompson. Where's it going? Where's the summer going? I don't get it. Man. I think in a post-pandemic world, or we're living with it, whatever the hell we're doing, uh, yeah, I think we need an extended summer. Can, can we just, can we go around again? It's like, you know, you're at Wonderland. Can we go around one more time? Can we just have enough, up the big hill one more and whew, another sweep around, please? Can we please? Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. You can always jump on board. We would love to hear from you. Great to have you here. Uh, feel free. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, we'll always looking for your last word. What else? Oh, I got to mention this too. Uh, Winona Peach Festival. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Winona Peach Festival time. You could win yourself a Winona Peach Festival prize pack, including amusement tickets, parking pass, but you got to head down to the festival Saturday. Saturday and Sunday and track down the CHML street team just outside the gates and give them the secret code word or code words. Good morning, Winona. Good morning, Winona. Uh, so if you find a street team member down there, just before you go in, uh, hit them up and, and scream at them just like I did right there to you. Uh, good morning, Winona. Are you good morning, Winona? Uh, and do that to the uh, street team. And not only will you wake them up, maybe spill their coffee, but also you'll win yourself a nice Winona Peach Festival prize pack. Uh, so there you go. There you, and is that not a signal that, you know, summer is sort of at where it is? The CNE also on? All right. I know enough depressing stuff. What am I going to start doing now? Singing back to school commercials. Uh, what else we got? Oh, um, lots of stuff going on. Uh, and, and obviously, specifically in regard as the ongoing discussion, especially in the dog days of summer, uh, when there's not a lot of news going on, talking about burnout and healthcare and quiet quitting and all that sort of thing. And it's uh, an ongoing discussion that uh, all, of, all of a sudden, uh, coming out of a post-pandemic, we are forced to deal with forced to discuss and 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 talk about whether it's uh, fixing the funding formula and and somehow finding a uh, a better way forward with our illustrious Canadian healthcare system uh, and who knows whatever that is but certainly uh, one thing we do know the status quo ain't working and uh, I think if we go through another pandemic or anything like that we won't have a healthcare system left. Uh, they're all pretty burnt out as most of the population is but you can certainly see how you feel uh, and how we've all felt going through this and then having the responsibility that they have. So uh, obviously you can understand that. Here's a report on that burnout from Global TV's Tina uh, Trajani. 
Heavy workloads and demanding standards are taking a toll on Canadian doctors. 53% of them who took part in the National Physician Health Survey have reported symptoms of burnout. That includes emotional exhaustion. Almost half say they are struggling with depression. 25% say they have moderate to severe anxiety. And it's so bad for some, nearly 15% admit they consider taking their own life. Now, all of this can't be blamed strictly on the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, says over the last 20 years or so, Canadian governments have been looking for efficiencies and trying to get as many patients through the system at the lowest possible cost without thinking about how that would affect healthcare workers. He says the pandemic only exacerbated ongoing challenges. The survey also shows confidentiality is often cited as a reason why many physicians don't access much-needed supports. Tina Trajani, Global News. There you have it. And uh, the fallout of a global pandemic is what we are experiencing now. And uh, we only have to look within our own homes to see lots of examples of that as uh, we move forward. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, just an example of what we got coming up this hour. A uh, cool art, a cool idea. Speaking about getting out and about in the summer of 2022, uh, a neat walkable art gallery coming to Barton Street. We're going to talk about that uh, moments from now. Also, Living Rock Ministries are good friends down there having a 20th annual Arts of August uh, celebration at the Gasworks. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, in the fallout of uh, uh, Lisa Laflemme uh, getting fired from CTV and you know, we really don't know why or what the quote business decisions were, but many people are, uh, are are talking about the issue around her letting her hair go gray uh, during the uh, global pandemic. Which obviously, you know, when you're stuck inside, there's only so much you can do. Uh, and anyway, so obviously she decided to let herself go gray. Uh, you know, not a big deal probably to most of us, uh, but to some it is, I guess, and perhaps some of the top brass at CTV. Now, is that the reason she was let go? I have a hard time believing it's it's that, uh, because usually what I found in, in these sort of business decisions, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. So, uh, again, um, will we ever find out? Who knows? But the interesting thing is this has certainly generated a lot of chatter on social media in regard to letting women go gray. And, uh, you know, obviously not an issue with men. If you want to look at news anchors, Lloyd Robertson, a perfect example, uh, who uh, was, of course, uh, on the air prior to to Lisa Laflamme. So uh, first we saw, well, there was many uh, people that spoke out about it and and including Ann Murray, my goodness. Um, but uh, Dove uh, Dove Soap started a campaign and talked about naturally going gray and all of this and, and this sort of thing and, and and attaching natural beauty to all of that and this is where we should be. Uh, they've jumped on board with that. Uh, many have said that campaign was in the works for a while. The timing in Canada, uh, specifically, obviously, was perfect for that. But now another fascinating feature with Wendy's, and we know if you can remember, close your eyes, think of the Wendy. Not if you're driving, um, the Wendy's logo with the red-haired girl on it. Well, gray now. 
at least for a, a period of time as they've jumped on board. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on as well. And uh, lots of stuff that's going on in and around the world, including the head of NATO in Canada. We'll talk about that a little later on as well. Those that uh, were born and raised in the city or those like myself that have come at a later time and, and uh, lived and worked in the city for uh, I don't know how many years now have, cert- have certainly seen it come through uh, various stages and all for the positive, especially in the last few years uh, as we've, we've really seen ha- uh, Hamilton transform into the city that it is uh, now. And we see little pockets, um, you know, that were once great parts of this city who have experienced some difficulty, then all of a sudden reintroduce themselves and pop up like mushrooms. And it's amazing how all of these uh, vibrant communities are now exposing themselves to uh, to Hamiltonians once again. Another great idea coming out of the Barton Village BIA, and that's a walkable art gallery. It's coming to Bart, uh, Barton Street uh, this fall. To talk more about it, Jessica Myers is with us, Executive Director of the Barton Village BIA, and here now. Jessica, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me, and I am well. Thank you. <laughs> so what's life like uh, in the BIA, where we are in this pandemic? Obviously, we've talked over the past two and a half years and how difficult it has been. What's it been like uh, recently? Are things turning around for for Barton Village? You know, things, um, Barton was not immune to the, you know, pandemic like uh, the mm. rest of the city and like other sort of uh, municipalities similar to Hamilton. Um, I started this role back in January and, you know, for the most part, it was quiet. Um, not as many businesses closed on Barton compared to um, other neighborhoods, which was a bit surprising. We sort of laid dormant for a while. Um, and, you know, since I started in this role, there's just sort of been some energy growing. Um, introduction of this art installation, I think, is really going to be big for the neighborhood and kind of like bringing back the life that's sort of been lost over the past two years, um, like other neighborhoods. But but it's exciting. I mean, we can't compare to Ottawa Street or James Street at the moment or even Lock Street for that mm-hmm. uh, matter. But, you know, an installation like this will really bring the eyes back to um, Barton Street um, for those who have lived here a long time and bring about some new eyes to the street. That's what we're really hoping for as well. Uh, you bring up an interesting point. You use the word eyes, and uh, mm-hmm. then you said bring new eyes. And my question mm-hmm. is, whose eyes? Is this about? What is this about? What is the objective here? Well, it's no secret that a lot of people have moved to Hamilton um, in the last few years, and you know, just like myself when I first moved here, you know, you 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 assume all the action is you know on the other sort of main drags, and you kind of overlook Barton Street, um, but. You know, there's a lot of people who've moved here, and we want to kind of demonstrate that, you know, this is the neighborhood. This is where you want to come to uh, work, dine, shop, you know, stroll the streets. If you haven't thought of doing it before, we really want people to come here and kind of see the neighborhood again in a new light. So talk about this art installation you're working on. Uh, This is a great idea to try to draw more attention to the street. Yeah, so it came about through um, some my Main Street funding that um, that you know they put the call out back in the spring, and with the help of the City of Hamilton, we we applied for this um, neighborhood art neighborhood wide art installation, um, and we received it. And one of the main sort of goals and missions of this installation is we really wanted to work with the community partners, um, you know, who there are so many of them here on Barton, and they do incredible work. And we really want to consult. We really want 
to consult with them as to what would be the themes that we could have artists work on um, for this for this art piece. So you know, it's not just going to be you know regular artwork in the windows. They're, they're, they'll be based on themes that we really worked hard um, creating with with these community groups back in April. We hosted some. Um, roundtable discussions, and um, you know, it, it's a really a storytelling piece. So, so we hope you know. I'm receiving the proposals as we speak. The last day is tomorrow for for anyone to submit their proposal, and the work that's coming in that speaks to these themes that we created back in the spring. It's it's pretty incredible, and we really hope to uh, tell the story of Barton Street here in Hamilton. I, you know. I think Barton Street is a true intersection of Hamilton, and we really hope that the art displays that that story. And we're forgetting to tell how and and where these will be displayed. Well, I'm currently working with the property owners right now, but they will, for the most part. I don't, I you know, I don't really. Um, the agreements aren't signed just yet, but right. they will be vacant properties um, spotted throughout um, Barton Street. So. Yeah. Our boundaries go from Sherman to uh, Wellington, so there'll be vacant properties, you know, scattered throughout that will showcase this artwork. That is a great idea. And any response from uh, the people that are, that have those buildings? What has it been like so far? How difficult, challenging so far, has it been? Um, I, I've worked for other BIAs and other neighborhoods, and it's usually quite challenging to get property owners on board, especially if they have a vacancy um, for for these sort of initiatives, but. I found a lot of the property owners here to be really responsive and excited about it, and they really want to sort of show their their property in a new light and hopefully attract you know some interesting businesses to come along. This is a great idea. Talk a little bit about the themes you've chosen. So the themes um, that we sort of honed in on, um, you know, one of them, for example, is spaces. So Barton Village, we it's no secret we lack. Um, green space and public space. So, so we're hoping for an artist to kind of take that and and interpret that in whatever which way they'd like. Um, you know, the idea of past, present, and future is another theme. You know, Barton has a storied history, and we'd like to sort of hopefully have artists kind of you know come up with something that displays sort of where Barton has come from and where it's going, where we're currently at. Uh, another theme is just simply people. I mean, there's so many interesting people here on Barton Street, and we really want uh, the artists to sort of tell their story if possible. And how do artists get involved? Artists get involved. So we have a call for proposals out on our website right now, um, bartonvillage.ca. It's under the Anything is Possible on Barton um, sort of headline. And in there, there's some details about the call for proposals. If, If there's any artists who have not yet applied and would like to apply. It gives all the details. And, um, yeah, we're accepting all proposals until tomorrow at 4 p.m. Great idea. Jessica Myers with us, Executive Director of Barton Village BIA, talking about a vibrant, walkable art gallery coming to Barton Street in vacant store for, uh, storefronts. Jessica, good luck with this moving forward. Oh, thank Be well. you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Karen Craig, Program Director for Living Rock Ministries. They are holding their 20th annual Arts of August. It's taking place tonight at the Gasworks, and Karen is with us now. Karen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. No, it's so exciting. It's a great day. So, uh, first of all, tell everybody who may not know what Living Rock Ministries is all about. 
Well, Living Rock is an incredible youth center down at Wilson and Houston, and we've been really busy. Um, of course, our employment programs are rolling, so if you know a young person who's just trying to find direction and uh, not going back to school but really looking at full-time work, um, we have this amazing Tri-Rock program. Um, so we're really excited about our work programs, del- food deliveries. We're the only youth-focused food bank. We have breakfast, dinner. We're open one to four, seven days a week. So we're just, you know, some of the programs are rejigging and coming back inside um, since COVID. So um, we're doing some new things in the fall. But Arts of August has been a staple for 20 years, Scott, and CHML has stood with us. You've stood with us all along through um, 20 years of Arts of August. So we're really excited to be hosting this tonight. Tell everybody what it's all about. Well, it's um, it's a closest to the theme um, show. It's uh, it's done. It was part of our anti-racism initiative in 2003. So the youth wanted to do something active. They didn't just want to sit around and talk about racism. So they created this um, close to the theme contest related to peace, equality, love, and culture. So youth 13 to 25 is submitted art. Um, some are singing. We've got some great um, musicians coming in to sing. Like when I heard uh, Spooky Gava and, of course, Sabian Croswell, they have written original songs, Emma Brown. So they're coming to sing, but we also have um, incredible art to look at. And one of the first pieces in, we've had two incredible pieces related to the Ukraine um, we've had uh, just amazing art is here tonight. And then, you know, John at the YMCA um, Newcomer Center, Youth Center out in Stony Creek, he does a photography group for four weeks um, in the summer, and he's got 10 submissions of incredible photography blowing up, and um, the youth are going to be showcasing their art tonight, so their photography. So it's a whole show. We've got over 60 submissions, so we're super excited. And we've got celebrity judges, so... Um, Megan Devich has been um, a real lead. She's the art admi- administration for uh, Hamilton Arts Council. And Nadi uh, Zemitsa is new, and he um, has a history, black uh, social and solidarity economics. And then we have Rose Devincia, who's um, she's um, a writer, so she's going to be looking at our poetry. And then Jennifer Henderson is a fine arts degree, as well as she does um, sacred blue tattoo. She's a tattoo artist as well as has, you know, a degree in education. So we've got some brilliant judges um, who will be making their decisions and great prizes. I think that's the difference, too, Scott, I've really noticed this year. Some young entrepreneurs are going on social media and, like, Omnis and Snafu and Dee's Do-Rags, like, they are talking, they are being ambassadors for peace, equality, love, culture on their social media and encouraging you to get involved and then donating incredible prizes. So... We are, the kids are going to be, won't believe what they're going to see tonight. And then Matthew Green is coming and he's going to open the show. He is um, coming to, uh, he's also got done certificates. So government Canada certificates for all the participants as well. So, yeah, it's amazing to watch. Uh, Karen, it's been amazing to watch over the the years how Living Rock uh, has evolved and, and taken on different things and different projects and such. And it's amazing, as you said, when you uh, uh, opened with this, the 20th annual Arts of August is taking place. How has this evolved over the years compared to when you started? Well, that's what I think that I think the use of social media and seeing the youth get on board, it's just been and to see their vulnerability to read, you're going to be able to read their bios and how they relate it to the theme and to see that work. It's just, 
it's incredible how authentic and vulnerable and just how much youth are sharing themselves and who they are. And it's, uh, it's just so powerful to watch. And, um, yeah, and yeah, it's been it's going to be another great year for sure. And coming live, I and mean, we've had two years virtual, so to have yeah. a live show. And the Gasworks has been completely renovated, and it's absolutely a beautiful, magical venue. So we're really excited to be here. You know, you talk about what it's like to go and watch and, and participate and see what these young people are up to. What does it do for them to have their work or to perform or what have you displayed like this in front of uh, this sort of exhibit? Well, it takes a lot of courage, and then when they step up in that confidence and get it done, and then they see, you know, the prizes, and they they get the acknowledgement, the comment cards from people, it's super powerful. And then we're also learning about, um, we have taken the theme again of celebrating Indigenous culture and friendship, and um, Vanessa from Hamilton Regional Indian Center did four cultural cafes at Living Rock, teaching us things, and all the color schemes, she said, let's do the colors of the medicine wheel. So the, the black, red, white, um, and yellow represent, she says, the colors of all nations. And so we're going to be um, celebrating that again this year. We just can't stop since, um, you know, when we saw the recognition of the, of the children's graves outside of um, residential schools, we just mm. made that the theme, and it's a theme again this year. So they're learning, they're sharing, they're um, expressing themselves, in a positive way, and our community needs to acknowledge the good things our youth are doing, that's for sure. So um, that's why I've always appreciated I know you really care about youth and the good stories about them. So, um, this, And the yeah. stories are tremendous. This is really what, it, what is a big part of these events, is getting to know yeah. the people behind them and, and the struggle and the courage and the accomplishments they've accomplished, uh, that they've mm-hmm. uh, received from this. It, it's amazing. Uh, how, yeah. many, how, many youth do, uh, uh, how many youth participate in this sort of thing every year? Well, they can do more than one submission. So we've got over over 43 people submitting, but we have, you know, 60 submissions. So, And, you know, to see the youth at The Rock work hard on their pieces as well is really great. So, yeah, no, it's really exciting. I mean, I think if Shaquilla was only here six months from Afghanistan when she stepped up and she's now, you mm. know, she's been a real voice and ambassador. We've got three alumni participating. Uh, Colleen speaking tonight. She was like... She saw a poster in 2013, and she's been doing art ever since, and now she's in graphic design at Mohawk, and she's one of our alumni. So you think, you know, you think how youth grow in this as well, so that's really powerful. All right, give us all the details again for tonight, uh, logistics, where, when's, where's, what's, all that. So 5 to 8 at the Gasworks, which is 141 Park Street North, which is a two-way street now, and uh, there's free parking, free refreshments, and... Um, it's, you know, it's going to be a really great uh, night. So we're just encouraging people to come in free, free admission, because we really want the community to come and encourage our young and emerging artists. So thank you so much for helping us spread the word and get people out tonight. All right, Karen Craig with this program director, Living Rock Ministries, the 20th annual Arts of August taking place tonight at the Gasworks on Park Street North. Uh, uh, congratulations with, with this, Karen. Another great uh, accomplishment for you and Living Rock. Good luck with this tonight. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. All the best to you, Scott. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking uh, earlier on in the week uh, in regard to uh, the firing of Lisa Laflemme at CTV News and 
many were upset about that, uh, not knowing why. CTV saying it's a business decision. Then stories leaked about uh, her gray hair, her letting her hair go gray during uh, the COVID-19 global pandemic. And, and somehow that and it's linked to all of this, although all of this is, is, is speculative at this point. Uh, but it seems that, uh, that companies are, are jumping on board. First, we saw Dub Soap, who uh, had a campaign, uh, hashtag keep the gray. And now we have seen Wendy's, uh, which was, uh, I was amazed to see Liz sent me this today. Uh, and it's uh, off Wendy's uh, Canada Twitter feed. And basically it says, because a star is a star, regardless of hair, hair color. And they've got the Wendy's logo with little Wendy, who normally has red hair with gray hair. So there you have it. Uh, that's the fallout from something like this. That's uh, Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, are you surprised corporations are jumping on this? I'm surprised that this is making such a ballyhoo with multinational corporations right here in Canada. So that's hmm. the interesting part about this. For many multinationals, you know, Canada is uh, considered or almost like a branch yeah. of the U.S. But it seems that there has been a lot of talk in Canadian boardrooms, especially at the C-suite level, that is saying, you know what, we need to jump on this. This is part of our brand in the case of Dove or, you know, Wendy's. I'm not so, so sure that this is part of their brand given their past um, philanthropic efforts or things that they have supported, but it certainly is an interesting extension. Uh, is this a Canadian issue? No, I think that what this is, everybody's talking about the gray hair and, you know, I'm on Zoom now, Scott, but you can't see me, I don't think. But, you know, no. I'm blonde, but I'm really blonde because I'm really gray. So either <laughs> you love your gray hair or you don't love your gray hair. Now, when Lisa Laflamme decided to go gray, I took notice of it. Of course I did, because like everybody else, we said we seem to take more notice of how our on-air a news personalities look almost more so than what uh, they're actually saying on screen. You don't have that much uh, sort of critique on a man's appearance unless it's something really, really, really extreme. So when I noticed that, I thought, well, it made sense, especially in 2020 when we weren't supposed to be sneaking off to our colorists in a deep, dark yeah. basement somewhere. And for her, I got to tell you, she looks great. So I don't think that it hampered her in any way, but I'm also closer in age to Lisa Le so, but you and I talked about something interesting last time, Scott, and that was, come on, is it really about the hair? Yeah. Is it because they weren't paying her too much? You know what? This is where, you know, this is classic. This will be a uh, PR case in schools that study communications, mm. that this is what happens when you let a narrative get away from you, when you don't want to face the facts, when you don't want to put out the whole story, other people will tell the story for you. And this has gone way beyond CTV's damage control could really ever think that this would go. What do you think is going to happen in in the C-suite, as you called it, uh, in regard to this? I mean, have we heard the last of this? Um, well, I'm hoping that they're passing around uh, bottles of Grecian formula. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that they are doing a, a um, internal Yeah, they're review. having an yeah. investigation, yeah. 
an investigation, blah, 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 because that's part of the playbook, Scott. That's what you're supposed to do. But, you know, so many things went off the rails here. And I think that in, in, in order to stem the negative tide of comments about Lisa Laflamme's treatment by CTV, they, you know, uh, they popped in Omar Sachedina's announcement as a replacement. So they thought maybe they'd switch the channel, but they didn't. I think that at this point, they really just need to take their lumps. I think that they've said what they said. They're going to do an investigation. I mean, sure, can they go around um, uh, promoting or supporting uh, groups that do support uh, the graying of the workplace? I mean, that would almost seem like virtue signaling and disingenuous. I think they really just have to put their money with their mouth where their mouth is and say that ageism is not an issue insofar as women are concerned at CTV. Are we to assume because nobody is addressing this that it is an age issue, that it is a hair color issue? I mean, you know, they're sort of letting everybody else like us write the narrative here. Well, and that's the big problem, right? And I think that they've almost given up on trying to switch the channel on the narrative. They said they were doing an investigation. People went, okay, yeah, let's see what you find out, that everything is fine, that you need some changes, that you need some workplace training on how to work with older people. I mean, I don't know. Um, I think that... You know, everybody is harping on the hair color, but ageism is a thing, Scott. You know, I think, yeah. and I've said this before, and I still stand by it, that when you're 50 in certain industries yeah, in this world, that you better start to lawyer up because they're thinking about replacing you, either because you're too expensive or they feel that you're too old. And so, most of us go into consulting where age doesn't really matter. Are you surprised that Sandy Ronaldo is hosting this week? I saw Sandy Ronaldo hosting, and I know how old Sandy Ronaldo is, and she looks great. Yeah. And I don't care what she's doing to her face, but uh, or her hair. And I think everybody's looking at her really closely, going, "Well, gee, she looks so young, and she's never colored her hair." And I think that she's in there. I I wouldn't be surprised if she's there by protest. To be quite honest, I don't think that. I think she knows why they're putting her there. I think that CTV thinks it's a move. Well, you know, Sandy's older. We're putting her in, so we don't care yeah. about how old people are i mean sandy's been doing the weekend news for us forever but you know these are just band-aids scott so it really um bears to see what ctv will do not so much now but really in the long term because all eyes truly are on them Alyssa freeman with us pr and pop culture expert as always Alyssa, thanks for the time be well thank you scott and you too we were talking about this at the dinner table last night, or maybe it was the night before, I can't remember. And, um, and you know, the kids and the social media, and, you know, next thing you know, it's TikTok. And my daughter sent me a TikTok thing on quiet quitting. Uh, so I found out more about it, and, and, and little did we know that this is getting a lot of chatter lately. What is it? What is it all about? Apparently not what you think. Let's bring in Dr. Anita Chinzer, Associate Professor, Department of Management, University of Guelph, and with us now. Anita, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. It's a good topic, Scott. This is kind of interesting because it's not what you think it is. Uh, it sounds a little different than what it is. So describe what quiet quitting is about. So quiet quitting is about quitting all those extra role behaviors that you would do, all the extra stuff that you do to be a star performer. And it's about saying, I'm going to go into work. I'm still going to do what's required of me. But there's no point in really breaking my back and in order to do more and push for more. So with some of those silent things, sometimes we're mentoring a new member of our team. Maybe we're 
taking an initiative or we're leading a new project or we're doing the extra overtime because someone didn't come in. People are pushing back and saying, you know what, I quit doing all that extra work. It's time for me to take care of me. And we should decipher really what this is. And it's not about going in and doing the bare minimum of your job. It's still about going in and doing 100% uh, of what you're supposed to do. But just that's with it, with what's in your job description. It's not about working to rule. It's not about working less. Right. And that's the thing is that often the people who have been doing the extra work behaviors are the strong performers. So by nature, they're just not going to go in and do poorly at their job. They're still going to do their job and do it well. But they're on mass saying, I either feel exploited or I feel like I'm not getting the return on investment. I've been doing this for the greater good, but it's time for me to take care of me. And so that's time and stuff that we do. It's not in our job description. It's often unpaid. It's not in our performance reviews. And it's often, you know, at our own time, too. Why is this happening now, do you think? Because before this, it's all about, you know, climbing the company ladder, putting your best foot forward, doing the best you can, which, again, it's not about uh, removing any of that, but, but certainly it's different now. Why? Yeah, I think that COVID did cause people to rethink their relationship with work. But even before COVID, these strong performers were always pushing, pushing for more, pushing for more, pushing for more, and trying to get the best for the company. But over time, they've realized that this is burning them out. This is not really in the best interest of them. And we moved away from just exclusively taking care of the company to also taking care of ourselves. And the conversation in Canada has largely moved where people say, you know, I'm burnt out. I need a vacation. I need to take a break. And that conversation that started, that's why I love this TikTok generation. They talk about stuff that my generation used to hide. And they're bringing it to the forefront. So this generation is talking about it openly, but a lot of us have been doing this in isolation. That's a valid point. Uh, what about fallout? What, what what are the results of this chatter? Ah, well, the results are a lot of us who have been saying no will now feel a little bit more confident with that decision. And some people who have wanted to say no, you know, no to I won't come to this, you know, employer branding event on a Friday night, a, no for no benefit to me. I'm not just not going to do it. People who wanted to say no, hopefully they start to say no. Unfortunately, there'll be people who continue to say yes. And if companies don't recognize how much extra work behaviors that there are, the people who continue to say yes might have to double and triple up their efforts, which could lead to a crazy vicious cycle of burnout. Is the, uh, my next question, is this sustainable? I mean, what, what, does, what do companies need to do in order to, how do they react to this? Yeah, I don't think it's negative at all. I think it's a really positive thing going to force companies to stop and say, wait a minute, what have I been expecting from my employees that if it doesn't get done, wow, there's nobody around to do it. Either they're going to have to redesign jobs and say, you know, going to that corporate event or going to a recruiting event on campus, that should be technically part of someone's job. And if I add it to someone's job, I'm holding them accountable for it, but they know that that's their responsibility. And if I add something that may take up 10% of a person's job, I have to remove the non-value-add tasks. Hmm. The other thing that companies might start to do and hopefully start to do is realize how many useless committees a lot of us are on that hmm. meet after hours and waste our time or how many meetings we've been going to that yeah. really are eating up our time that are not really productive activities. So hopefully those could be pushed aside as they begin to reevaluate what's critical and what's not. 
So if you're the employee, how do you set these boundaries for yourself? You mentioned guilt earlier. You know, you're doing this to, you know, at least if you're hearing about this, you're feeling better about your decision. Uh, As the employee, how how do you balance all of this? What I love is quiet quitting can manifest in one of two ways for employees. One way is that they flat out say no. So, you know, can you stay overtime because someone else is coming in late? No, I can't because I made a commitment to my family or my friends or to myself to leave and go to the gym, do something else. So they flat out say no. The other way that it manifests is they say, okay, but what am I getting in exchange? So sure, I'll go to that corporate recruitment event. But if you want me to work those five hours on Saturday, what afternoon are you giving me off? Where are you compensating me for those Mm -hmm. five hours? Are you going to give me money? Are you going to give me time off? And they're opening up that negotiation. And it's happening now, too, because it's such a tight labor market. People are saying no without that fear that I'll be fired and then tomorrow you'll replace me there's no replacement in the market right now either. Dr. Nina Chinzer with us, Associate Professor, Department of Management, University of Guelph, talking about quiet quitting, a trend we're now hearing about on social media. Uh, Nita, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating issue. Be well. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking at length yesterday about the deal the Prime Minister and Germany signed in regard to the potential of a hydrogen uh, hydrogen facility on the East Coast in which um, green energy, uh, wind turbines, like a mass of 160 uh, wind turbine wind farm generates... Uh, enough electricity to convert hydrogen into a fuel, which uh, hydrogen is clean burning once it gets there, once it gets to that fuel per, uh, fuel part, but it's the energy that is needed in order to convert it. Hydrogen is not a fuel. It has to be converted into one. And with this green project out east, they're using wind turbines in order to do that. Um, at, at this point, uh, it's still, it's still uh, technology that needs uh, a lot more refining, and many are asking... Uh, Although this is a great idea and something that we certainly should should pour research and development money into, why are we not using liquid natural gas that we have right now and the facilities we have right now to help out Europe or reinforce those in any way we can? Let's bring in Werner Antwiler, uh, Director, Sauter School of Business Prediction Markets and uh, Chair in International Trade Policy, University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Werner, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well. Good afternoon, Scott. So hydrogen in this project that was announced the other day sounds incredibly promising for the future and something that I understand we've been working on for years and years and years to try to move forward. Many are asking why we're not using LNG at this point while we do this research and development. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, there are sort of short-term issues and long-term issues. The short-term issues are all about uh, the high gas prices in Europe, and they're trying to get LNG from anywhere they can. And they're looking at sources uh, uh, like North America, including the United States, but also Canada. But uh, unfortunately, we have one logistical problem with uh, LNG. Uh, we don't have export terminals up and running yet. Um, they are actually under construction here in BC. We have two, uh, but they won't be coming online uh, before 2025. And that is not soon enough for what you uh, Europe's needs are today. So uh, should we be spending a bit more time working on those immediate problems as well as investigating in, in researching hydrogen? Well, uh, they're really separate issues, and we should do both. Uh, uh, one doesn't actually exclude the other, uh, because uh, as far as LNG is concerned, uh, there are export opportunities for Canada to be had, uh, but mostly by delivering LNG to Asia, whereas um, if you do that, we free up resources in Asia, in particular in the Middle East, also in Qatar, uh, to uh, supply Europe. And so it's a world market where uh, it isn't important to actually ship it directly from Canada to Germany, for example, but it's important to increase the overall supply to make sure that there are enough resources for Europe to tap into and deal with their current issues of uh, the um, Russian gas that has been cut off. So, uh, But that doesn't exclude that we also uh, look at the long term, and that means looking at hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Prime Minister uh, was quoted as saying last earlier on in the week that there, he hasn't seen a business case for LNG, for liquid natural gas. Um, and yet we see a business case for this, obviously farther down the road. And as I mentioned earlier, this is something we should definitely be, be developing. Um, but is there a business case for LNG? Well, we have to be mindful of uh, which coast we're talking about. There is a business case for LNG on the West Coast. There is not a very strong business case on the East Coast because we don't have pipeline capacity that can transport natural gas from where it's produced in Alberta and elsewhere uh, to uh, the East Coast uh, to ship it and liquefy it uh, to, uh, to Europe. Uh, so the, the problem here is simply uh, geography. And uh, again, uh, the business case is actually uh, quite compelling on the West Coast, and it will continue to be so. Uh, and uh, we also are, in fact, exporting natural gas to the United States, and they are exporting gas from their LNG terminals, which have been built much quicker than here, uh, to Europe. So in that sense, um, uh, the, the nat Canadian natural gas is finding its way uh, to Europe uh, indirectly by way of the United States. Should we be building more energy infrastructure? Yeah, in general, um, that's always good to have more infrastructure, uh, whether it's um, high voltage transmission lines uh, to um, the capacity that we need to actually bring uh, special natural gas to market. Uh, here in British Columbia, you know, we are currently under uh, construction with two export terminals in Kitimat and in Squamish. Um, this will probably uh, see expansion in the future. Uh, there are still important environmental issues to be sorted out too, and how we can make sure that uh, um, the liquefaction doesn't take up uh, uh, too much uh, in terms of CO2 footprint. Uh, there are some ideas how to use electricity for that purpose, for example. But down the road, um, uh, one can also take natural gas and convert it into hydrogen. And here, there is really the sweet spot uh, for Canada with its vast resource of natural gas. Uh, rather than shipping LNG, one can also actually separate the carbon from the hydrogen and methane and then export the hydrogen 
while the, um, the, the carbon can be actually made useful as a byproduct, as black carbon, uh, and can be turned into graphite and, and graphite. Uh, so there are significant opportunities uh, down the road uh, that actually enable natural gas to be used in other ways than just shipping it as LNG. Uh, the hydrogen deal uh, for the project out east, um, and again, hydrogen, not a fuel, has to be converted to a fuel. That's what takes the energy, and if that's done through green means or renewable means, that's how hydrogen uh, becomes as clean as it as it does. Uh, this project that they're talking about out east has a, a wind farm with about 160 wind turbines on it. Uh, generating enough electricity to convert the hydrogen uh, into fuel and then wherever it goes from there. Um, why not just take those 160 wind turbines and generate electricity? Well, they will generate electricity, but what do we do with electricity is really the key. We can uh, transport it to other parts of the country that uses uh, transmission infrastructure that we currently don't have. Uh, so the, the, the nature of intermittent power sources like wind is that um, they produce output not necessarily when it's most needed. And so converting uh, wind power and other intermittent power sources into something we can store and transport is extremely useful because then we can uh, take uh, Canada's comparative advantage in having a lot of uh, coastline and a lot of land and um, allow us to export energy uh, to other markets in the form of uh, hydrogen or to be more precise, actually in the form of ammonia. Uh, because uh, uh, liquefaction of hydrogen is actually even more difficult than uh, liquefying uh, LNG. And uh, so it's actually much easier to transport hydrogen in the form of ammonia, which can be also used as an input into uh, chemical processes, for example, for making fertilizers. So ammonia has actually a multitude of uses uh, that are currently already in place and will uh, basically provide also an early start to this hydrogen industry. Why has it taken, because uh, this is certainly not new technology, why is it taking longer for this to develop than, say, EVs or wind turbines or any of the other renewable yeah. sources? It's always about cost. And uh, while the cost of wind power has come down dramatically in recent years and also the cost of solar power, we are now reaching the point where some of these projects are at the at the threshold of becoming economically useful. Uh, what is still missing is uh, the piece for making electrolyzers cheaper, which is what is needed to convert water with electricity into hydrogen and, and making this technology more efficient. And that's really the holy grail of where we need to see development. And which is the reason why the federal government is actually really stepping in and helping a uh, with this process of creating new markets and also probably helping with R&D in various uh, forms and instances. Uh, the, the, the challenge will be that the so-called green hydrogen that takes uh, renewable power and water and makes hydrogen out of it is still more expensive than what we call blue or turquoise hydrogen, which is basically from LNG, either with uh, carbon capture storage or um, through uh, something called methane paralysis, where you actually split the methane directly into carbon black and into hydrogen. Uh, these two technologies are probably somewhat cheaper, and we have uh, projects under development, for example, here in British Columbia. Werner Antwiller with us, Director, Sauter School of Business Prediction Markets, University of British Columbia, talking about hydrogen and where it is in our future. Werner, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, it's been a while. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, your thoughts on today's visit up to none of it, uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, along with the head of NATO up there, and obviously concerned over Russian aggression and how we are protected in the far north. Is this Justin Trudeau's wheelhouse? Not really. Um, it, it's not. I mean, part of it is, part of it isn't. Obviously, when you have a discussion of the environment, that is in his wheelhouse, because whether you agree with his policies or not, including the, the federal carbon tax, it is something that matters to him. It's something that concerns him, and it's something that the federal liberal government has dealt with fairly extensively since they were first elected in 2015. But in specifically, if you look at the issue of Nunavut, and then you start melding it into foreign policy matters, as you say, like Russian aggression or intervention, while certainly he's familiar with it in the sense that he's appeared at NATO meetings, G20 meetings, and others, and has discussed a lot of these issues even before the Russia-Ukraine conflict occurred. There's been other conflicts during his leadership or his premiership. Um, the end result is that when he discusses things like this, it tends to be out of his comfort zone. And for that reason, it's not that he's going to sit there and make a bumbling mess of himself, but he doesn't speak like an expert, whereas there have been former prime ministers in this country, both conservatives and liberals, who I think could give a far better accounting of themselves. Uh, so is this ultimately about reinforcing the North and making sure that everyone's protected? Yes, to some degree. Um, I mean, look, the North has obviously been an interest area for a number of prime ministers. The first one, I guess we can push it back to Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, was really the first one to look at it. Uh, my old friend and boss, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, obviously looked at it quite extensively, traveled to the North and <clears throat> excuse me, released legislation, policies, and other statements about the North. And yes, I think that obviously Justin Trudeau has followed his predecessor's lead and has some expressed interest in the North. But I think if you look from start to finish thus far of his uh, leadership, and obviously it's not over, but you know, in, in some number of years it will be, if you look at least the first, let's say, seven-plus years, no, I don't think that Justin Trudeau has spent an enormous amount of time on the North, and certainly the northern region of this country, or the basically upwards of Nunavut, the Arctic, elsewhere. I think they would certainly suggest that other prime ministers have paid more attention to it, but he's not completely ignored it, obviously. All right, I want to move on to another issue. Yesterday, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, had some pretty stern words for the prime minister, uh, saying that he needs to step up and uh, and meet with the provinces and get some sort of resolution, some sort of solution uh, for our ailing uh, Canadian health care system. Um, two questions, your thoughts on sure. <laughs> Jugmeet Singh speaking up when he, in fact, is the one holding the power here. And also, why does Justin Trudeau not want to talk about this with the province? It, he just seems to brush it all off. And this is like a massive concern in provinces. Yeah, I mean, two very different questions, but I'll tackle them as best I can. Now, the first one, uh, why is Jugmeet Singh speaking up? He's speaking up because he feels as the minority partner in the Liberal NDP agreement which is tentatively supposed to run until 2025, he believes that his policies and ideas should take precedent over all others. And that's why, as you may remember, you may have discussed it on your show, 
about a month or so earlier, he threatened to walk away from the agreement if some of the policies that he put in place, including pharmacare, dental care for, um, if, you know, for families that are below a certain amount of money per year, those are things that matter to him quite a bit. So nationalization of dental care and pharmacare. And if those are not in by, he said, the end of this year, he's threatened to take the NDP, walk away from the agreement, and that would basically leave things up in the air for another federal election in early 2023. No one knows that that's necessarily going to happen, but I think that basically right now Singh just feels that he's got all the power. And, you know, in his own mind, I think he realizes this is the closest he'll ever come to power. The country is not foolish enough to ever elect the NDP federally. So, you know, in, in that sense, he should be more careful with what he says, because who knows, at some point, Justin Trudeau may feel that his numbers are decent enough that he'll just pull the plug anyway. In terms uh, of Trudeau, and, sorry, you, but yeah, you go asked, ahead. No, go ahead. Very quickly, Trudeau and the provinces. This is unfortunately, I'll be very quick. This is just sort of a historical problem with Justin Trudeau as leader. He basically feels that, you know, when you look at the pendulum swinging, he believes it's specifically on the federal government side. He doesn't deal specifically with the provinces unless he meets with them during, you know, you know, the basically the prime ministers and premiers meeting at conferences, and he basically doesn't listen to a lot of opinions that are different than his. And unsurprisingly, most premiers in this country are right of center. He doesn't have a lot of time for them. Uh, it's odd, though. He's quick to talk about dental care and pharmacare and daycare, but yet he doesn't want to address health care. No, not It's really. bizarre. <laughs> All right, no, Michael Tobe of- with us, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and used to write the speeches for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The latest news, the Prime Minister and the head of NATO are up in none of it in Canada's far north talking about uh, the security of the far north and obviously concerns, uh, especially with Russia's uh, current aggression that we are seeing uh, in regard to Ukraine. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. So what do you think the purpose of this is all about? What, what is this? Uh, because at the end of the day, we're still a little short on our NATO payments. So what is the purpose of the, the NATO head coming to Canada? Uh, I think it's very significant. Uh, he, this is his first visit to NORAD, apparently. Uh, NORAD is, um, <laughs> it is absolutely crucial to what we have been contributing all along to North American defense and therefore to the west flank of NATO. So this is an important visit by the NATO Secretary General, and as he put it in his op-ed in the local newspaper in Globe and Mail down there, uh, this is because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now we need to all step up. It's also about climate change. Uh, That's going to be the two official subject matters. But meanwhile, uh, what's happening is that Canada has been involved in advance of this meeting, but as a result of the same thing, that is, the changes to the geostrategic uh, situation with Russia invading Ukraine, but also the melting of the ice has opened up passageways up there. So the, the high north is now increasingly a center of geopolitics, and therefore the Secretary General of NATO has arrived. 
Uh, obviously, um, you know, we're not keeping up with the NATO 2% that, that uh, we're supposed to be. Uh, many have criticized this government in its lack of military preparedness and such. Is NORAD up to date? What is the NATO head of NATO going to find up there? He's going to find something that's in the midst of a major upgrade. Uh, NATO, this uh, uh, NORAD, which is, by the way, it has a name, North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD. Yep. And 1958, the Cold War led to uh, this binational, you know, the U.S. and Canada having a joint command center to basically in those days follow uh, what was going on with the Dew Line. All of the arrangements that were in place 30 years ago are now in the process, and this was in advance of this meeting, of course, in the major, in the major upgrade. Canada is about to put some fairly major bucks into this. Uh, $3 billion over six years has been announced in the budget, committed, therefore, and another couple million coming. But uh, the total, they figure, Canada is going to fund thirty, uh, almost $40 billion over 20 years. By Canadian standards, that's an upgrade. But the key thing is, it is an upgrade. It's going to rely on satellites. It's going to change um, surveillance. It's going to have over-the-horizon capacity. A lot of capacities that have been lacking Suddenly, everybody now says we have to have it. Uh, look what's going on in the world. Uh, you said the other part of this uh, defense and then the environment. What you, you talked about passages opening up and such. What are they going to talk about regarding environment? Well, um, climate change is leading to impassable passageways in our north, which we claim as our water um, being open. Uh, Russia has already run some an icebreaker through there. China is saying this is a near <laughs> a near sea for us and they you may remember have sent a giant icebreaker through we don't have anything like the icebreakers that either russia or china has china's upgrading theirs the snow leopard has has gone through we have to do what we can to maintain our sovereignty and in cooperation with the us through norad and now with of course nato uh, we need to have all of our all of our defenses and our antennae, so to speak, uh, really upgraded. Uh, we've only got about a minute left here, Elliot. I want to ask you about uh, the German Chancellor and the Prime Minister meeting over that hydrogen deal the other day yeah. and, and and moving forward with this. Uh, obviously, we need to do research and development into these sorts of new energies and such, but is this what Germany was looking for? Well, <laughs> Germany would like some immediate help in making up the shortfall that Russia has created. You know, they're turning off the gas, basically, so that uh, Germany, but a lot of Europe, will freeze in the dark over the winter, uh, weaponizing gas supplies. We are looked to as a supplier. But really, I think much of what really happened was behind the scenes. What we could see in front of us was very exciting, long-range, long-range possibilities for Canada and a new market, particularly hydrogen. But in the short term, it doesn't look like we can make, make you know, fill in that uh, shortfall. I think behind the scenes there was a lot of discussion about what to do about Russia. Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor, political science, Carleton University, chief of NATO in Canada, and discussing the far north with the prime minister. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. Take care. 
I didn't realize this until my kids pointed it out. But um, and, and and they're the they're the barometer here. Uh, one more weekend, and then it's the long Labor Day weekend, and then it is back to class. To talk more about all of this and how we're prepared, Education Minister for Ontario Stephen Lecce is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. And uh, I think you get a passing grade on that. There you go. Okay, we'll try. Uh, so I, I want to ask for some clarity right off the top, and I already know the answer to this, but I want to hear you say it as well, is that there's been some confusion in regard to a couple of universities that are reinstating mask mandates and such. Um, but with Ontario schools, can you just get, once again give us the protocol for vaccinations and sure. masking as we head back in September? First off, the priority is getting kids back to normal, stable, and more enjoyable schools. It's been two tough years on these kids and their parents, too, as you remind me, but on the kids most especially, and I want them to be in a normal school. The uh, Children's Health Coalition, the Ontario Science Table today, likewise the Sick Kids Hospital and the CDC, and all the global experts agree. Masking uh, is recommended to be optional. Parents will make that decision based on their own risk tolerance. We're creating an environment where we're uh, making it a safe space, regardless of where you choose, no judgment, do whatever your family thinks is best, given the circumstances. I know a few folks who may wear a mask because they've got grandma at home and she's a bit immunocompromised, and I know many others who are not. Uh, and I'm, we, we, our mutual interest is just to create a space where people are comfortable. We've never imposed a mandate for COVID-19 vaccines on staff, nor have we done it on students, and we never will. Uh, that is a choice. Of course, we're encouraging immunization for those eligible based on the discussion with your doctors, uh, but it's not a requirement, not at all. Uh, of course, we want families to make sure that those other vaccines that are important get, uh, uh, get caught up on because there's quite a few children that just had missed out on that over the pandemic. So making sure that the kids are safe and healthy is important as we go to September. The protocols are pretty much the same as they were in May and June, folks. I mean, it's the same policy that's governing our return in September. We have improved the ventilation in every school in Ontario, right across Hamilton, but literally every school in the province has been assessed and optimized, 100% of them. We have 100,000 HEPA units, more in Ontario than any province combined. We're going to continue to provide your kids and staff with rapid tests. Your kid comes home with the sniffles, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, some sort of symptom emerges that's related to COVID. You're going to have access to the rapid test like you did last uh, uh, spring, which I thought was helpful just to give you a bit more confidence, you know, if it is COVID indeed or not especially as we get the flus and the colds and other respiratory virus emerging into the fall. Um, and finally, when it comes to the practices of a child, I mean, we're going to be restoring clubs, field trips, extracurriculars, sports. I want children to be kids. I want them to embrace learning both inside and outside the classroom, which is why I'm putting such an emphasis on the extracurriculars. Sports mean a great deal. It's not just physical health, mm. it's mental health, arts, uh, drama, music, all of this matters. I want all this back for these kids. I want more experiential learning, more outdoor learning. I want them to feel um, the level of support uh, and the normalcy I think they deserve. And I think a lot of parents want the same. Uh, as you mentioned, things looking pretty good as far as getting this uh, global pandemic at least under control and, and managing it. How concerned are you or prepared for you are you for an outbreak in the fall if that does happen? You know, we, we are ready uh, to respond to the risk. But I think most of us, uh, and certainly following the advice of Dr. Moore, the chief medical officer of health, we do believe these kids can get back to normal settings with still risk mitigation, we have all the investments in place. I mean, the ventilation standards are so significantly improved relative to where we started. And every mechanical ventilation system is better off using the highest 
ventilation standards. So the, the policies are strong, the protocols are effective, and the medical community agrees they've been working. My vision for September and through the June is to remove the disruption that comes with pandemic, that comes with labor strife that happens every three years. These kids need to go to school in September and stay in school till June. Stability matters. It's why, mm. even in the context of our labor negotiations, I brought forth an option that's a bit unusual. It's not three, normally it's three years. Every three years in Ontario, parents know the story. There's some sort of union escalation against the government of the day, yeah. liberal, conservative, NDP, literally going back to Bob Bray, that's the truth. I've tabled a four-year deal. And the reason why I did that, Scott, is really an extra year of stability for these kids and for the workers too. I mean, I think a lot of educators just want to go teach, but for the kids most especially, if I can give them four solid, uninterrupted years of learning to get back to the basics of why they're in school in the first place, reading, writing, and math, fundamental skill set, they're going to help them get a job, that's a great outcome. And I know... I've spoken to Donna Scully. I've talked to, to, to Neil Lumsden, your local MPPs, colleagues of mine. They tell me every day parents are telling them to stand up for stability for these kids, get them back to class and keep them in class. And I'm telling you, we're going to do that for these, for these kids. Uh, this is going to be tough, Stephen, obviously because uh, you're talking about contract negotiations, education support workers, as well as teachers right. and such. Some of them are asking for like an 11% increase because we've seen inflation go up this year. How do you manage that? Well, you know, it, 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 and it isn't even 11%, Scott. I mean, I, I, let me first off just say, these people, these workers, I think in their heart, they mean well. They do good. They make a difference in our schools. I, I still remember my custodian's name in my elementary school, my Catholic school back in where I grew up in the GTA. Like, I, I really respect them, and I want them to hear that. Like, I, I value what they do. We cannot run our schools without them. And I want them to know that. We brought forth a plan that I think is reasonable. It's an 8.24% over the four years. It includes the protection. We are maintaining the most generous pension, benefits, sick leave, and long-term disability in the nation, full stop. I mean, we're talking about 11 days of paid, 100% paid sick days, plus 120 days they, they will receive at 90%. I mean, I don't know any sector of the economy, public or private, that has that type of package. We have to look at it as a package, as an aggregate. We can't just look at the pay because that's not what the taxpayer is only paying for. There's many other elements here. When you aggregate it all together, it's literally a 52% increase over three years. It is the equivalent of $21 billion, which, folks, means the combined education budgets of BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba is still less than what this demand is. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I want to be reasonable. I want to be fair, recognizing that these folks work hard. There's some short-term inflationary pressures this year. I think most recognize inflation will come down sharply over the coming years, certainly over the next four years of a contract. But I want us to be grounded on the principle that whatever we do, we have to put kids first. And I do not accept, nor do I feel it's particularly a good early step for CUPE specifically, uh, whom we've been meeting with in good faith all along, all summer, to have taken a decision to put themselves in a path to a strike. And what that means, Scott, is before the government even proposed our counter to their 52% demand, even before we counter, we have not brought forth our option, uh, our counter option, and they already put themselves in a pathway to strike, which I thought was so bizarre. At least look at the proposal. You may think it's insufficient, then go do what you've got to do, but they put themselves in this path before, days before we even tabled it, which for me gave me the impression 
they were on this path regardless of what we did because they knew we're not going to get 52%. No government, I don't think any party could would be would, would be prepared to do that, frankly, or I hope they wouldn't because it's, it's unaffordable and it's unrealistic for the taxpayer who's footing the bill. I don't know anyone in this economy making 15, 17, 18 points a year, and I'm sure they do. Uh, many folks out there do a lot of good work. All I can say is let's stay focused on kids. Do not walk away from the table. Do not walk away from stability and from the families. We need to be the adults in the room, and we have to just stay there until we get a good deal, a good deal we can all live with. And, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, Minister. Uh, People were tired of this before the uh, pandemic. Now, you know, I don't think anybody's got the patience for it. They just want to see the problem solved. Uh, Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education for Ontario. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. going to talk about uh, education and hair color. And he's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. We're doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Actually, I know you're going to talk about education tonight. And we just had Education Minister Stephen Lecce on. And something he mentioned, he's trying to get a four-year deal with the teachers this time out uh, instead of a three-year deal in order to get, you know, to have a, a little another year of peace, I guess, before going through all this crap hmm. again. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? If I'm I think a parent, I, and now my it'll cost more. Through, yeah, my kids are through the school system, so... But if I'm a parent, I don't care if it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 18, 29, whatever. Just get a deal and make sure that the kids who have been out of school and all screwed up with COVID and everything don't have any disruptions. And that falls on him, but it also falls on the unions. It's on both of them. There simply cannot be any excuse for any student missing one minute of any kind of school going forward. All right, I would agree with the same thing. I've noticed, though, this uh, it started to get a little vocal earlier on in the week, and now it's settled down a little bit. So uh, hopefully we uh, they've just gone behind closed doors, and they're going to do their business as opposed to uh, negotiating in the media. Which, well, let's uh, hope, because honestly, they will be, who, whoever, if there's one side or the other that makes this difficult and were to create a situation where there couldn't be a deal, I really believe the public would have absolutely no time for that side. And there would be huge blowback because of, you know, there always is, but this is a unique time, especially because of everything that's happened. Nobody will tolerate it. And, and when you're negotiating as a public service union or as the public, you have to have the public on your side. And I don't know that either side could keep the public if they were taking us down a path towards something that, again, doesn't have kids in school. All right, uh, valid point. I think everybody feels uh, a lot similar to what you're feeling right now. Uh, let's talk. I'm tired of talking about this, but I guess it's something we should be talking about a lot uh, because it's something in regard to aging and the, especially specifically, the aging of women and aging of women professionally in the workforce. Uh, Wendy's the latest to jump on board and put little Wendy, who's literally usually has the red hair, in gray hair. Dove also jumped on board. Is this exploitation or is this spreading the good news? I, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to Arthur Fonzarelli literally jumping the shark. I, I think we're reaching a point here where we've taken the Lisa Laflamme story to its natural conclusion. There's still room and, to discuss. And, but, and you know, really, the, the hair color may have absolutely nothing to do with any of this. It's just it's the it's the tittle, it's the titillizing uh, uh, fact that's come out of it because we don't know anything else. 
this could be a case where CTV or Bell decided she makes five times more than we want to pay for this position. We're going to bring yep. in someone who's willing to do much less. Now, yep. the, it's all about money. But we can be critical of Bell because they have done a crappy job explaining themselves in this. Yeah. So, I mean, they've, they've earned the criticism they've received. However, you know, I, I do remember, and someone else brought this up, um, Dan McLean used to work at CHCH, and I believe yeah. that, you know, Dan was let go at some point or pushed out when he got to a mm-hmm. certain age. I mean, look, it, this, th- there was a column that I saw written hmm, – what paper was it in? I can't remember. When I say that I think we've reached the point where we're jumping the shark here, I saw a column written where someone wrote the line to the effect of, you know, Lisa Laflamme wasn't just the anchor of the news. For millions of Canadians, she was the anchor of their life. And it's like, okay, now, now we've gotten to the point where we've lost all of our, all of our minds if this is the case. I, mm. It's a great discussion to have about aging and everything else. But Ultimately, you know, you're a talk show host. You're on. What, there's going to come a day when you're gone, and yep. whether it's because they push. Hey, you Scott. Out there's been Scott. There's been Scott. There's been many days in my many times in my career where I have been gone. <laughs> well, already, all of us who are yes. in the media or whatever else, there's going to come a day when we either get pushed out or we leave, and it's really nice. There's no question. It's fantastic that people have this kind of connection to her and felt this kind of affinity and bond. It says something about a great job that she did. But I don't know. I'm just I'm getting to the point of being almost a little uncomfortable because we're sort of losing the narrative and making this about something else. And I don't really know what else it is. And maybe it's just what you're saying, where it's now becoming a giant marketing tool, which to me makes it even more distasteful than anything else that was going on, that we're now going to take this serious discussion about aging. And how can we advertise this? How can we make money off this and look like we are somehow really concerned about this? Uh, let's Let's keep the narrative where the narrative needs to be. And if we're going to keep talking about it, let's keep it on the let's keep the focus on what the important issues here. But anyway, I just I I have reached the point of fatigue on the thing personally. Uh, you know, you bring up a valid point. Uh, it's one thing to talk to about an older woman about her hair color, but um, you know, a Wendy's logo, which is actually a kid in gray hair, but maybe that's the whole point of it all. Uh, jumping the shark, though, and Fonzie, uh, that certainly does come to mind. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator as well. He will be on right after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great show. Hey, by the way, we're going to be talking about Rob Golfie, that story, and about what you can actually <laughs> trademark. Talking about crazy stories. Stick around for that because I didn't know you and, could trademark a pose. And, and, and like think about and think about how much extra publicity Rob Golfie has gotten out of this. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's hilarious. What a funny story. It's a, it's a great story. We're going to talk to a, a lawyer about intellectual property. And you know, if I could, I trademark picking my nose. And anyone who does that now has to pay me a royalty. It's what about our bald heads? Can we trademark well, our bald heads? I, I, Why not? I may have to look into it with the lawyer today. We'll talk. That's all right. Scott Radley coming up. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Dave in the newsroom and Liz and Will for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, it's Tom here. Uh, with all the Lisa Flam and Wendy stuff, I, I had a thought. 
can we start flipping gray hairs into Tucker Carlson's head and speed that process up a little bit? No? Uh, nice.